Welcome back to the University of Auckland. It's great to have you back here and to have um, rational economics discussed. Uh, it doesn't happen very often here. I like to think it happens in my classes once a week, um, but certainly to have another um, a group of people discussing it on campus is, is, certain, is certainly a great thing. I think one of the interesting things we saw during the week, and I thought I'd briefly show you, um, because I think it's, it's illustrative of, uh, of a point, so I'll just bring that up on the screen. Now, this was um, an event which held, was held in Venezuela during the week. Obviously in Spanish. But this was an event that occurred during the week, and I think this demonstrates the, what is it, the base of gold itself. A lot of people say that gold is not money, that gold is a virus rally, as we all know. But this is the people of Venezuela as part of their first lot, as it says there, of gold is returned this last week from European banks. They understand what gold means and its power, uh, whereas some other people sitting in public so when you see the people jubilation, jubilation, I think it's a certainly interesting time for us to be here discussing uh, really what uh, uh, is the foundation of money. There was a slide. Now, so again, as I said, welcome to the University of Auckland. There is a, um, just to give you a, a background, uh, this building is about uh, three or four, about five years old now. It's a super facility. Um, and uh, we used to be around the university and dotted around various buildings, but now this has become a real focal point for the business school and for the New Zealand uh, educational community and business. The bathrooms are just in behind here, so if you need to go to the bathroom, just in behind. Um, and I think Louis is going to talk about the, uh, the, the, um, the, the breaks, so we'll have some food there at the moment. So thanks so much. Thanks very much, Julian. Thanks very much. Um, yes, we'll have morning tea in the room. This, uh, last year, we, for those of you who were here last, last year, we had morning tea a little bit further out on the floor. This year, the caterers will come in. I've asked them to come in at 11 uh, in the mornings and at uh, 3, 3 p.m. in the afternoon. Um, so maybe that'll be a little early this morning. Uh, Julian, would you mind if when... Uh, telling them to be a little later this morning, if, if they can adjust with that. If they can't, then 11 will be fine, but we're a little behind schedule. Uh, we're on New Zealand time here. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so my name is Louis Boulanger. I will be giving two lectures this week, one this afternoon, one Friday afternoon. And the morning lectures will all be given by Professor Antal Fekete. And this morning, uh, Professor, uh, Feketa is accompanied by Julian Darby from London, and we will also have a lecture from the name, e the name. Hmm? Sandy. 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 What did I say? Julian. Julian. <laughs> <laughs> did I call you Julian, Sandy? <laughs> I'm, I'm so sorry. <laughs> you, you've been nationalized already. You just you just got here. <laughs> Sandy. Sandy Jaitley. Sorry, Sandy. And uh, we also have a lecture from Keith Weiner. Did I say that all right, Keith? <laughs> Close enough. <laughs> Close enough. <laughs> and uh, one from Rudy Frisch from Canada. And yes, who was behind the camera. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome the first lecturers for, for uh, the symposium, Professor Antal Fekete and uh, Sandy Jaitley.
Thanks very much, Louis. Um, so it's, it's one hour, and yes. then, okay. Um, so welcome, everyone. Uh, thanks very much uh, for having me, having me back. Uh, the, the title of the first lecture is going to be the coordination of the natural social interaction. And um, this paper, um, the aim of this paper is to show that the financial system, the monetary system that, uh, that, that, that develops is some kind of representation of a form of social interaction. Uh, the monetary system is the consequence, not the cause, of productive social interaction. And um, through this paper, we'll sort of uh, we'll go through um, a lot of uh, erroneous thought that is prevalent, especially amongst the gold cabal, about what fractional reserve banking is, or what banking is um, generally. Um, we often hear that uh, that statement that. The, the banknote developed as a um, deposit receipt for gold, held at uh, goldsmiths throughout London and whatnot, and that they were nefarious and started to print more receipts than they had gold because they knew that not everyone would want to access the gold at the same time. And it seems superficially like that's a, a logical argument, but it's completely wrong. And that's not the way that banking developed, and that's not the way the banknote developed at all. Uh, but we'll come to that. Uh, we'll come to that a bit later on. Okay. So before we can talk about economic action, we have to talk about um, money. Now, does anyone know what the definition of money is, Rudy? Money extinguishes all debt. Yes the ultimate extinguisher of uh, any debt. Now, if you just think about that statement for a moment, money, the substance that is used as money, has to have value in and of itself as a consequence of that. Because if you have a debt and you want it extinguished, obviously you must place some value on that monetary commodity. So it, it does have value. The monetary commodity must have value. Now, Menger described the process, uh, the iterative process, by which the substance was pr promoted to money in the origin of money. And that was done in 1892. So we've had this record for quite some time. Now, gold and silver have been the monetary substances um, for a very, very long time. Truth be told, we don't actually know um, when they first became money uh, because the, the Sanskrit literature which first referred to gold and silver can't be dated itself. But we know of the mechanism by which they were promoted to money, courtesy of Menger. So gold and silver, very, very old. Um, there's, there's no record of when humanity first gave value to these metals. So, 
you have to think a bit about this iterative procedure and how you promote a substance to money. So this substance, whatever it is that the people choose to, to, to be the monetary substance, will necessarily, necessarily have a very high inventory to primary production ratio. Now, you can also call that stocks to float. Now, the, 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 the stocks to flow of the monetary substance is exceptionally large. Now, this arises, this is a consequence of the fact that money has pretty much constant marginal utility. So that substance which has pretty much constant marginal utility when, when, when uh, put out across the earth will have this, 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 this feature that it has a very high stocks to flow ratio. Now, decreasing uh, constant marginal utility um, is probably just worth um, expressing that in a different way. So constant marginal utility means that um, Incremental additions to one's personal holdings of this substance do not affect one's personal terms of acceptance of this substance. Now, that means that your, your, your satiation is never satisfied sort of, uh, for the monetary substance. Now, this substance must exist. Okay, there is no question that this substance must exist. Just like if you have a set of numbers, there will be the largest number in that set. So, if you arrange all of the commodities on Earth by the stocks-to-flow ratio, because the stocks-to-flow ratio is the way that we measure marginal utility. Marginal utility is an abstract concept, and stocks-to-flow is a, is a tangible, physical entity. Two metallic commodities stick out, and they're gold and silver. And the extent by which these two metals differ from the next substance in terms of stocks to flow is, is gargantuan. Gargantuan. So, the one, so you have gold with the highest stocks to flow, closely followed by silver, and then copper. Uh, and copper has about three months of inventory at any one moment versus annual production, compared to gold at 80, 90, some people have 150 years plus. So there, 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 there's, a, there's a vast, vast, vast difference between gold, silver, and the rest of the metals. We like them, we have liked them, and we are likely to continue liking them. No question. And also, if you think about it, to, to, to have such an exceptionally large stocks-to-flow ratio must mean that we valued these metals over a very long period of time, much, much longer than um, recorded history. You can't, you can't accumulate that much over a short period of time. You certainly could not have accumulated that much metal over recorded history. Okay, so we have the monetary substance. It's been chosen, and it's gold, or silver. Uh, but that's, that's not uh, important at the moment. So once you have the monetary substance, 
the financial and payment system can evolve. And the financial and payment system is just a mirror of the natural social interaction that arises from the fact of our own existence. Okay? Now, social interaction, I've used that phrase quite, quite a lot. Um, it's my synonym uh, for economic activity. Economic activity is a, bit, is a bit base, and I actually prefer the term social interaction. So, here is an example of social interaction. Good morning. Yeah. Um, so, and another example of social interaction would be, um, Louis, I want to borrow a billion dollars to make the new jet engine. No problem. <laughs> so you can define social inter interaction into two sets, those that involve money and those that don't. The former did not involve money, at least superficially, but the latter uh, did. So the farmer sending wheat to the miller, who sends flour to the baker who makes bread. The crude extractor sending oil to the refiner, who sends refined distillate to the, uh, to the retail pump. These, these are all examples of sort of social interaction. Interaction that's not uh, related per se to the medium used for money, Interaction that occurs by the very nature of our existence and interaction that must recur for the maintenance of our existence. So I'm trying to get the, uh, uh, the, the idea of movement being the important thing here. Interaction is, is a form of movement. So social interaction can occur in different forms and frequency. And now the social interaction I'm talking about is purely the monetary type of social interaction. So what do I mean by form and frequency? So the sale of bread by the baker is pretty much guaranteed. People will always want to eat. Uh, and therefore the baker is pretty much guaranteed uh, a revenue stream for his business, assuming people still want to eat bread. But the sale of the new jet engine to the aircraft company is not guaranteed. You know, that's certainly not a, a foregiven conclusion. Okay, so this is an example of differing forms of social interaction. The construction of an airport takes a different period of time to the construction of a residential home, unless you're a Russian oligarch or something. But this would be an example of different, differing frequencies of social interaction. So it might only take one year to build a house, but it would take, let's say, three years to build an international airport. Okay. Credit granted for the construction of a factory is extinguished, usually, by the sale of the produce of that factory. Okay, so you borrow money to build a factory, the factory produces things, you amortize that loan by the production of that factory. Credit granted for the sale of a fast-moving good, like carbonated drinks, 
is extinguished by the sale of the drinks themselves. That is also known as, can anyone give the other name for that? That's self-liquidating credit. So you have two types of credit. Credit that liquidates itself and credit which doesn't liquidate itself. Those are the two forms. Okay, so we've talked about form and we've talked about frequency. Let's move on to liquefying the social interaction. So an often heard expression is that banks create money. Now, you pick up any, any um, GATA-related blogger and you will find this statement repeated many times, many times over. And it's just, uh, it's just wrong. Uh, but to explain how they, uh, how they arrive at this erroneous conclusion, we have to go through the process of higher-order money creation. Now, higher-order money, it's not what I've called it, it's what it is termed as by the, by the economic community, is a misnomer. Because the composite of higher-order money, and I will define what higher-order money is later on, but the composite of higher-order money is not, is not strictly money. But I'm not going to drop that uh, nomenclature for the moment. Money, gold and silver, can only be created by the arduous extraction of gold and silver from the earth. That's it, period. That's the only way money is created. And the volume of money on earth has a monotonic increasing character. Gold and silver, once extracted from the earth, remain on the earth into perpetuity. So in order to explain the process of higher order money creation, I'm going to go through a little example here. So imagine an endeavour that will increase the general standard of living. For example, the construction of a warehouse for a village to store out-of-season perishable produce. Now this village, let's call this village planet Earth. So this endeavour would alleviate the potential for, uh, for famine. So it's a, it's a, it's a good, good endeavour, you know. Now, the enterprising villager who has insufficient access to money, the monetary resources, to build a warehouse by himself must seek help. So he approaches three other villagers who each promise one-third of the money required to build the warehouse. The three villagers all require the money to be returned no later than two years from present. The three villagers demand a tribute for the abstention of having the money themselves. Sorry, the three villagers demand a tribute for the abstention for giving away their money for this period of time. And they all haggled a rate for this, uh, for this premium, for this tribute that was agreeable to all parties. They haggled a rate, I'll repeat it, that was agreeable to all parties. So there are two facets as an aside to consider in, the re uh, in this haggling process. 
for, uh, that, that established the, uh, the, the, the premium, the tribute. One is the length of time the three villagers were willing to give their money away for. And the second is the, uh, the extent to which the warehouseman can afford to pay a tribute without making his, um, his, his, his endeavor counterproductive or not net profit positive, something like that. If the tribute required is too high, it may result in a loss too severe for the villager, enterprising villager who's built the warehouse to handle. There is a limit to the amount he can charge for the simple task of warehousing produce. So we've got two elements here, the time, the time element of the villagers and the amount of time that they're willing to give the money away for, and the productivity element. Is that rate sufficiently low enough, low enough for the warehouse, uh, for, the, for, the, for the villager who's building the warehouse uh, to make a profit? So time and space, time and productivity. Okay, so now we're going to move on to just very quickly higher order. That was an aside, and I'm going to explain how the, the, the higher order money comes into existence. So we have three villagers, don't forget, and one enterprising villager. The acknowledgement of the debt by the enterprising villager to the three other villagers creates the first form of higher order money. It's a trust between all parties concerned that debts will be honoured. Credence is given to the relationship. And that credence can be represented by three chits, three pieces of paper, possessed by the three villagers. The total amount of money, gold, in the village, planet Earth, would not change during the initial exchange or subsequent spending of proceeds. I think that's pretty clear. But the acknowledgement of the three new chits creates the first form of higher order money. These chits disappear once the credit originally given has been extinguished by the enterprising villager from the profit proceeds from his warehousing activities. So is, is that clear? And that's when I might need the picture to explain it. So, um, we have our gold in the village, and this represents the three new chits. So the continuance in the obligation between all the parties gives value to the chit. <coughs> if, 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 one, if, 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 if the enterprising villager says, I'm not going to pay the debt back, the chits don't have any value. If he says he will, they do. Now, these chits can be sold 
obviously, by the, the villagers that, that possess them, if they need to. And it's not hard to imagine that other villagers might be willing to buy the chits. And it's not hard to imagine that different chits representing credit behind different endeavours and with different maturities would also exist. Okay, so we have our chits for our warehouse here. They have to be given back within two years. We might have other chits that need to be given back within three years and four years and so on. And you have the various grades of higher order money. But the important thing to remember is that after, let's say, three years, the chits turn into gold. Okay, so you should think about this as actually rotating, with this rotating more slowly, and as you come down towards the gold, you've got increasing rotation with gold spinning infinitely fast, but I'm not going to go through that directly. important thing to remember is that all chits eventually get extinguished. Okay? And they disappear once the credit that they represented gets discharged. So, stepping uh, back, you can see that in our village we now have gold and a system of higher order money. And everything is pleasant and it's all working nicely. Except that higher order money is not strictly money. It's obviously a form of credit. But they call it higher order money. So um, this would be the equivalent of, let's say, M1, uh, M2, M3, that kind, of, um, that kind of description that's given in... Um, in most economic textbooks. So, there is a class of chit in the village that is superior to all other classes in terms of demand from the villagers. The chits that represent the credit behind the production and sale of items continually in demand by the other villagers. Bread, clothing, firewood, ETC. Can anyone imagine why these chits would be more in demand, let's say, than a chit representing the construction of a warehouse? They move faster. They move faster. And it's guaranteed, almost, to be discharged. So that is uh, the, the superior chit is a synonym for a real bill. And the chit would be a synonym for a bond. Now, the merchant bank, we've all heard that phrase, is a synonym for a dealer in bonds, and the discount house for dealers in superior chits or bills. So, in our example, the villager, instead of keeping the chit himself, could deposit it at the village's local merchant bank, against the creation of a deposit. So the merchant bank in the village now possesses the, the chit from the warehouse and has created a 
deposit in the name of the villager. A deposit which turns into money, hopefully, upon the settlement of the original credit. Now the system of merchant banks and discount houses arises, arises as nothing more than the precipitation of social interaction. They're the consequence of social interaction, not the cause. The balance sheets of these institutions represent nothing more than part of the aggregation of the representation of social interaction through bills and bonds. Banks, merchant, the merchant bank did not create the bills, uh, the bonds that they hold. They're merely bringing order to that which would exist anyway. Now, obviously, you have merchant banks that would be more honourable than other merchant banks, and merchant banks that would hit the dust well ahead of other merchant banks because of their... Uh, their lack, of, um, their lack of knowledge of productive enterprise, I don't know. So obviously, it's up to you to decide which merchant bank, which discount house you would want to deposit or you would want to, uh, you would be happy having a deposit with. <coughs> 